Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for that promise that where your people gather in your name, you are with them. I say thank you that you are with us here this evening. Pray that you would give us clarity of thought. Um, pray you give us understanding as we look at your word together and consider um, what it means for churches to be independent and yet interdependent. Help us to weigh the scriptures carefully and help us to understand what it is you're saying. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, at um, at Modern Road Church, we are an independent church, um, which essentially means as a local church body, we make decisions. Um, Why do we do that? Because as we read the New Testament, that seems to be the closest to what we find um, as we read the scriptures. Uh, what that means though is that there is no higher authority beyond this local church other than the Lord himself. Um, and therefore people sometimes say, well what about bishops? What about episcopal oversight? Who do I as pastor, have me down to do it, who do I answer to as my boss? Um, now the essential answer there is Jesus. Uh, but we're going to have to think about uh, bishops first and why we are an independent church without Episcopal oversight. So if you have a look down at your handouts, um, you'll see a passage that we looked at last week from Acts 20. Um, Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders there. And we looked at um, verse 17 and then verse 25 to 28. Um, I'll read them again and just show you um, the interchangeability of the terms used regarding the different um, names for the leaders, for the elders there in Ephesus. Acts 20 and verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, and he goes on. Um, Then skip down to verse 25, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of everyone, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. Um, and if you were here last week, you remember we pointed out the interchangeability there of the terms. Um, so you see elder, um, and you see that in uh, verse 17, the elders of the church. Um, that's the presbyteros word, where we also get presbyter, so in some churches, particularly a Presbyterian church, um, That seems, we said last week, to bring with it ideas of wisdom and maturity and stature, an elder word there. Um, You also get, in verse 28, overseers, and sometimes that's translated as bishops, uh, episkopos, they oversee the church, there's a leadership element, we talked about how that word is sometimes used um, in secular administrative um, tasks within New Testament times as well, within a city, and so it's kind of an oversight thing, um, leadership, and then shepherd as well in verse 28, be shepherds of the church of God which he has brought with his own blood, um, where we get the, the pastor word too. Um, you get that word coming up particularly again in Ephesians 4.11 we said last week, um, pastor teachers and evangelists who prepare God's people for works of service. Um, and we said last week there's a sort of an interchangeability between the different terms. So an elder is an overseer, is a shepherd, and it seems where Paul speaks of different um, where he uses different terms, that's for a different emphasis that seems to be coming. Um, so therefore, where does this idea of bishop come from? Um, a bishop who, um, in many different church settings around the world, um, today will have oversight of an area or multiple churches. So for example, there is um, the Anglican Bishop of Oxford, 
um, to which lots of our Anglican um, friends will, the pastors will submit to or look, look to in terms of authority. Um, it's striking, as you look back in church history, and you see that bishops <coughs> came, it seems, from a particular historical need. Um, we'll look at that in a second as to where that came from. Um, so why don't you have a look down in your um, handouts, and you can see there I've, I've printed a passage from St. Jerome, um, he's writing uh, his commentary to the Philippians, um, he was a guy who translated the Bible into Latin, that's particularly where he's known in terms of church history. Um, I'm going to press pause on the timer, uh, on the recorder, and then you guys can have a read of that and tell me, um, if you can, why uh, he says, at least looking back on the situation, why um, bishops have developed in the way that they have. Uh, so we'll press pause. Okay, back together. So in Jerome, we see, um, 347 to 420 AD, we see that there's been real disunity and dissension within the church different people following different leaders and so um, Jerome describes the situation and then says bishops essentially were brought in over the common council of presbyters um, to bring unity where there had been division um, and he says if anybody disagrees with him that a presbyter and a bishop are the same then to read um, Philippians um, another reason that bishops were brought in were, was to guard against heresy as well and there were some particular um, doctrines being discussed and um, argued about um, and, uh, and bishops were brought in to guard against that and to keep um, the church um, pure as well as being unified. Um, when did bishops get brought in? Well, again, on your handouts you can see, um, I mentioned a guy called Ignatius. Um, he was 35 to 108 AD, so it's pretty early when um, the bishops were put over different churches or different regions. Um, he says this, he says, Be eager to do everything in godly harmony. The bishop presiding in the place of God and the presbyters, in the place of the council of the apostles and the deacons, who are most dear to me, have been entrusted with the service of Jesus Christ. <coughs> so there you see three different roles. You see um, bishops, and you see presbyters, and you see deacons. Um, so the development of bishops being above a church or churches within a particular region um, was, a particular, was, a, was an early thing. Um, now, some argue that bishops um, are, are there in the scriptures. Uh, Jerome would disagree with them, as we've seen. But what are the good arguments from the Bible that churches ought to have bishops over them rather than being, um, uh, rather than being independent decision-making bodies? Well, um, firstly, uh, they would say there's a chain of apostolic authority and they would say particularly we might want to look at what um, happens in the New Testament particularly as Paul appoints Titus um, on Crete to then appoint elders um, maybe turn up Titus chapter 1 um, and you'll find that in there um, now it is true that apostles did have an authority that crossed local church boundaries um, they were commissioned for this particular task um, by the Lord Jesus himself and yes, you do see Paul writing to Titus to say, I mean, you need to appoint elders over the churches that we've planted. But to then say, because Paul told Titus to do this, to make that a normative thing, um, I think is problematic. I think where we are at a particular point in church history um, where the apostles were dying out. Um, and I guess the question is, did, did they then want to appoint further 
um, bishops with authority or was there another way of bringing authority to the, to the different churches? So you see it there in Titus 1 verse 5. Um, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Um, he then uses elder terms through down to verse 7 where you have overseer terms as well. Um, so, so the question is, when the apostles had gone, did they leave a chain of authority which meant bishops after them, or was there another way of bringing authority to local churches? Some would say that just as Paul appointed Timothy to appoint elders, so that ought to continue. Um, I wonder whether actually there's an emphasis not on on bishops, but actually on the Bible being the authoritative word of God after the apostles have gone. Um, uh, I was reading a blog article by Andy Robinson um, last week over at was that Road Baptist Church who, who is hopefully writing on quite similar stuff at a similar time. Thank you Andy if you're listening. Um, and he was just making the point that what's striking as you read some of the later letters in the New Testament, particularly to Timothy for example, Paul's concern as he's finishing the race, as he's passing the baton on to Timothy, um, is not to raise up one like him with oversight and authority, not to raise up a sort of bishop after him, um, but actually the sufficiency of the scriptures um, for local church leaders. So he's talking about the need to pass on the gospel rather than passing on um, an authority in, in the form of a bishop or somebody over local churches. No authority in the post-apostolic era outside the local church, as Andy puts it. Um, and even if he was in Titus, um, giving Titus some kind of authority to establish elders or overseers. Why should we think that becomes the normative thing to be continued um, again and again and again for future generations? Um, I want to argue we're at a particular key point in church history the apostolic generations dying out um, and the Bible then, the scriptures are being put in place. <coughs> um, which means we are an independent church because we think that is the best fit for what the New Testament teaches. Um, But we are, uh, as we saw last week, there are a number of things which kind of counter that or which temper that, which give us um, different uh, decision-making opportunities. Um, So we saw last week, if you were here um, or have listened in, that we are elder-led because there are particular passages where people are called to submit to leaders, um, churches are called to appoint leaders, but we are congregationally governed. That is the final authority, especially in matters of doctrine, and of um, discipline um, come down to the church body. So do you remember we saw, for example, Paul writing to the church in Galatia, not to the leaders, but to the entire church, saying, why have you allowed these people in among you? Um, or he writes in Corinth to the entire church, saying, why have you allowed this guy who's committed incest to stay in among you? And he should have been removed. So it's the entire body being addressed there, rather than just the leaders. So there's this interplay between um, leadership and the, the church body itself. Um, but Andrew mentioned last week in part of the discussion um, well, what happens when things go wrong so we're going to press pause and think through some of the potential dangers with independency at this point um, and then we'll uh, feed back and see where we've got to thank you, so some of the uh, things that we've said in terms of dangers of independency um, what happens if you have a division amongst um, your elders 
What happens if there are divisions within the church? What happens if there's divisions and different ideas when it comes to theology? Um, I guess historically bishops have been there to bring unity and if there is division then how do we deal with that? Um, the comment there really would be uh, well we'll come on to it in a bit but the, the need for local churches to be working together and supporting each other where we can. Um, uh, another suggestion or comment was there can be a lack of collaboration between churches, a sort of isolation. Um, FIEC uh, historically has been um, called fiercely independent evangelical churches. It would be less the case now, but um, historically people have said that. And the other thing that you sometimes get as well is that independent churches either attract or create independent pastors, um, which means there can be a, a difficulty in, in them working on a team or working with others um, because they're, they're constantly um, wanting to do things in a different way or slightly left field or outside the box. Um, all good questions, some of those will be covered, um, some of those we can chat about afterwards, uh, but um, we'll come on to the next thing now, which is, so we've talked about independency, um, and yet we are as a church, I want to say we are interdependent as well, we are partnering with other churches as appropriate. Um, as you read the New Testament again, it seems to me that you see uh, churches not existing in a vacuum, not isolated, not just separate, not just doing things by themselves. Um, but the whole uh, New Testament speaks of the one fellowship of the church, the universal church, uh, and that seems to be work its way out through the way that different congregations in different cities or even within the same city um, seem to relate to each other and have a responsibility towards one another. So I'm going to press pause again. Um, and then we're going to do group work thinking through as best we can what kind of partnerships and interdependency um, do we see within the New Testament. Uh, Press pause again. Okay, if I could just gather you all together, that'd be... Thank you. Um, uh, So, um, we talked about different examples of interdependency and partnership within the New Testament. Um... Clearly, as the gospel message is being um, spread around, as there are churches being planted, um, Paul will speak at the end of his letters often of a diverse list of people, different people involved in different ways, doing different things. This is not Lone Ranger, isolated Christianity, um, but rather a kind of complementarity of different people um, doing different things. Uh, The other thing that we spoke of was uh, Paul's collection for the church in Jerusalem um, which is quite a big thing that goes through much of the New Testament you see it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 you see it in Acts as well um, culminating in I think Acts uh, 24, 17 at least he speaks of that after an absence of several, several years I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts of the poor and to present offerings and so where in Jerusalem there's been um, Christians who are suffering because of famine and then because of persecution it seems as well Different churches contribute in different ways and then they they seem to be representatives from some of those churches as well with Paul going to Jerusalem and taking the money um, that they've been collecting. Um, Another thing, you just see Paul asking for prayer from different churches as he goes about his ministry too. Um, So it seems that these churches weren't isolated and had nothing to do with each other um, but rather there was news being spread. Um, Paul will use the example of 
and Macedonian churches giving generously to try and encourage the Corinthians to follow through on their giving, for example. Um, this isn't isolation. Um, they are joined up and interdependent. Um, but then sometimes people have pragmatic issues with uh, independency. Um, uh, problems, if problems arise, then what does that mean? How do we deal with that? And what if it goes wrong? Uh, and a couple of things that often come up or that people mention. One, what if there's trouble? That is, um, as we thought a moment ago, what if there's division within an eldership or division within a church even? Um, then what do we do about that? Does independency mean that um, uh, those things just are forgotten or ignored or that we suffer in silence and deal with it in ourselves? Um, I think probably from my experience the answer is that we do um, look to other local churches for help in those things, um, whether it be for advice or even for someone to come in and to, um, to come and speak to a group who are, who are facing um, division or schism. Um, and it's great where we in Oxford have a number of FIT churches and other churches as well um, where we receive lots of uh, uh, help uh, and advice at times. Um, the pastors in Oxford are quite good at meeting up and encouraging each other and bouncing ideas around. Um, so if there's trouble, then there's a sort of informal way of dealing with that. Um, as well as that, there's um, as well as that, then there would be the FIC directors, um, who again have been helpful at times where we've discussed things or brought their expertise or their experience. Um, the other one, apart from trouble, then is what about training? Um, one of the things that people often think as they look at perhaps more denominational setups is that if we are independent then we haven't got the same um, ability to train groups as perhaps Anglican churches might. Um, I think my answer to that would be that again within the local environment we've got the ministry training course and a number of our trainees and others at church have been through that um, there would be 90 or so people every Tuesday hosted at St Ebbs in Town um, an opportunity for people to come together and to, to be trained to a level um, uh, there's also training that can happen in situ in local churches now too where you've got things like Union or Crosslands um, both available within the Oxford region um, and then you've got also local partnership training that sometimes happens within different FIC churches so we might get someone to come in and train our pastors or train our trainees and come and do some sessions for us. So while it's not quite as uh, developed as you might find within certain denominations, um, then we do have a, an opportunity to train particular individuals um, where necessary or where we're able to. I'm going to press pause there. Drink. And so final section, just for the last ten minutes or so, thinking through membership and why we as a church have membership. Um, what's the point of it? Why is it useful? Um, it's worth saying, I think there are no sort of absolute proof texts to say, look, church membership is clearly here in the Bible. You, I don't think you can go to a chapter and a verse and point and say, aha, there we go. Um, but there do seem to be some particular key texts that show the concept for us, though, um, if not the formal practice as it existed in New Testament times. Um, four brief things to say, four things that uh, formal membership helps, if you like. 
Um, the first one is that it helps individuals, it helps us, uh, it helps the self. Um, I think I've said before at Magdalen Road, I have a friend who tells me he would never join a church um, if it didn't have membership because he knows his own heart and he knows the reality of a wandering heart and therefore he wants to have membership so he can bind himself to others and be accountable to and challenged by others. Um, uh, so that's particularly then if, if we were to go astray then membership means that we formally belong to something that for a time we might be removed from it for our own good. Um, we thought last week about uh, church discipline from 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2. Uh, Matthew 18 is probably a helpful passage to have in mind as well. Um, people often look at this one when they think through the, the ins and outs, if you like, of church discipline. Um, let me read for us. Matthew 18 and verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Um, so where someone, because of their public actions or, or their teachings, seems to be missing the mark when it comes to living as a Christian, or they're just downright sinful, and so bringing the gospel into disrepute, um, as we saw in Corinth last week with this probable incest going on in 1 Corinthians 5, and where that happens then, the Bible calls us to, after the necessary warnings and announcements um, for the church as a whole, notice, the congregation as a whole, to exclude that person from fellowship and to treat them, Matthew says, as a pagan or a tax collector. Which is interesting then for us to think through, what, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Well, the reality was he associated with them. It doesn't mean that we give up on someone as they're removed from um, the fellowship, but it means we tell them the gospel. Uh, we treat them as if they were unbelievers, as Jesus did, um, and as he was so often criticised for by the religious folk of the time. Uh, but for them to continue in the fellowship in, in, in a way that's not been challenged brings the church and, and Christ into disrepute. Um, and so Matthew says, um, after necessary warnings, then you ought to formally exclude them in some sense. Different churches have worked out different ways um, as to what that might look like, perhaps from the Lord's Supper, perhaps from um, Sunday um, meetings, perhaps even from uh, association with other Christians, and maybe just one or two will gather with them. But again, it asks the, makes us ask the question, what have we been excluded from? Um, you see that again worked out in Corinthians. Um, you get 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 6. Paul says, The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. So if it is the same person as in 1 Corinthians 5, it seems this um, incestuous guy has been removed from the body um, and then Paul is calling on them to bring him back in because he can see there's been genuine repentance. And there's a few interesting little concepts there in um, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 6. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority. It may be that most people shunned this guy in some way. Um, or it may have been some kind of a vote and there was a majority vote going on against this person that they should be removed. Um, and if it was the majority vote, well that does imply some kind of membership system. There are numbers being counted, there are individuals being 
um, assess as to what their vote actually was. Um, so some would use that argument there. Um, so it helps self, it also helps administratively, um, which is a slightly funny one, but sometimes, as we, again, we talked about this last week, sometimes because the family metaphor seems to be the overarching metaphor for church in the New Testament. Sometimes people think of the early church as just a big lovely family, disorganised, um, with little form or structure, uh, little by way of process, and it's all about the people. Um, but there are a few passages that show us that wasn't the case. Um, it wasn't just a big love-in. There were lists of people being kept. So we read in 1 Timothy 5, there are a list of widows being provided for. Um, I don't think that's a metaphorical list, I think it's a genuine list of widows who are being looked after by the church body. Which doesn't really prove anything, but it does show you that church is more than just a mess, or a big kind of family gathering. There is organisation. As we said last week, you try, you try getting five kids out of the door um, in the morning before school. Um, you need processes, you need steps. There needs to be the reality of organisation. Um, you need to know who's having lunch on which day and what PE kit they need and it just gets complicated. So church was more than just a big kind of commune. Um, that's the second one. So it helps self firstly, helps administratively secondly. Thirdly, I want to say it helps everyone else. Um, one of the problems with church membership um, is in our society uh, we live in quite a consumeristic place if you were in the New Testament and you became a Christian, um, you would leave a whole lot of stuff behind if you became a Christian. Um, you might leave your family support behind, you might lose clients if you're a business person, you might lose respectability, you would lose an awful lot. And everybody would know you were a believer, um, and you would be shunned by many because of that. For us, in our culture, we can kind of take it or leave it. You can easily be a nominal Christian. Um, you can live the old way that you used to live, but sort of tag Jesus on as well. Um, it was obvious if you were a believer then, it's not so obvious now. And so it helps everyone else because it helps the world know that you are not just doing church as a hobby. You, know, you do this on a Sunday morning, and then on Wednesday evening you swim, um, and you go to a film club on Friday. It's not just another thing, but it shows you are serious about it. Um, but also it helps everybody else within the church know that you are formally here too because as we've said it, it is easy to consume you can go one church for this another church for this another church for this and you're sort of family hopping um, whereas actually to say no I formally commit myself here then that means people know you're here for the long term and that they ought to invest in you and look after you as we said if you were a Christian in Iran or somewhere today we probably wouldn't need membership in the same way um, because it would be obvious that you were a believer. Whereas for here and for us, it's a pragmatic and wise and necessary thing um, just to formalise what's already going on. It tells the world and it tells the church that you are here. And then fourthly, it helps your leaders. And again, I've said this before at Modern Road, um, it's kind of a two-way thing. It's a two-way thing to say you as a member are putting yourself under the leadership of of these elders in this church. I'm putting myself under your authority and I'm committed here. Um, and as I'm committed to doing that, then will you commit to me to look after me? Um, because we as leaders will have to give an account for how we've looked after you, Hebrews 13 um, and verse 17. 
Um, and if you've never formally said, I am under your leadership, then maybe we think you're going somewhere else, or we think you're, because you only come here one every four weeks, and actually you've got another church, whatever it might be, and it's just, it formalises that from our perspective. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 13 verse 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. One day I had to give an account for how I've looked after the at Morgan Road. Um, and if I never realised that you thought this was your church, um, or were not prepared to say, yes, I commit myself here, then that makes things much more difficult. So that is why we think membership is important. Um, at Morgan Road, as you can see on the back of your sheets, uh, this is just taken from our membership leaflet. Um, it's not rocket science, but it talks about, um, as you enter membership, then what in one sense you uh, receive and then as you enter membership too what in another sense is expected of you so what do you receive? well um, the church community accepts the responsibility to care for, encourage and disciple you and the church community and the elders accept the responsibility to nurture the spiritual gifts that God has given to you and to receive blessing from God through you and then the elders of the church accept the responsibility of teaching you the truths of the gospel ensuring that you are a disciple within the Christian community and then what, what is expected? Well, one would be to regularly attend when the community gathers to worship, primarily, principally on Sunday mornings. Secondly, regularly pray for the members of the church, for the church's community life and for our witness to the world. Thirdly, to regularly give financial support as able in order to ensure the continued ministry of the church. And fourthly, to regularly serve the community life of the church in whatever ways are appropriate and to his or her gifts and calling. So it's what you ought to expect and what we ought to expect as well. I have one more question which we'll break into groups for and then we'll feed back um, and then we shall finish tea and coffee and go. And so the final question we just discussed was why do people not become members in churches? Um, Different ideas in the room. Um... One suggestion that sometimes there isn't a huge difference between just being an attender and a member in that people can serve in lots of ways just by turning up on a Sunday um, and by being involved in the life of the body and that formal membership thing doesn't necessarily mean a huge deal. Good point. Um, some spoke of uh, the, the not necessarily wanting to commit to um, life in Oxford as often people only stay here for two or three years. Um, again, good point. Um, I'd add on to that. Sometimes people don't want to commit because they don't want to commit to a church because they're keen to um, hop around different places doing different things and experiencing different um, church styles or different um, uh, teaching or experiences um, rather than actually being committed to one church family. Um, we mentioned as well that often people are reluctant to become members, to formalise their membership of a church because they have seen church or church leadership done badly um, in, in years gone by and experiences from the past, um, which is a sad um, but true situation. Again, I'm aware of people like that too. Um, sometimes as well, it's just that we don't really know what membership is because uh, some churches don't have membership and actually just by turning up on a Sunday, um, in a sense, they are members. Um, rather than a sort of formal commitment to the life of the body. Um, All helpful uh, comments. Uh, Yeah, but at MRC we think membership is important because it's just a way of formalising that someone is here 
and committed and then we therefore are committed to them too. Um, let me pray for us as we finish and then we'll head to our separate homes and, uh, and get on with um, the rest of Sunday. Father in heaven, thank you for the local church. Um, thank you for the local church being the bride of Christ and we do pray that we'd have that right understanding of um, independency and yet interdependency and might we be a blessing and a kindness to other local churches as they are to us Um, might we be wise as we uh, interact as a church family a congregation together Um, would you be at work within us Um, would you guard us please from heresy would you guard us from division and schism Um, would you guard us from going off in the wrong direction Um, but Lord Jesus as the chief shepherd of your sheep would you be at work um, within us um, guiding us and overseeing and caring for us Um, and might we grow in Christ likeness um, as your word is opened week by week and might you preserve unity within us Um, and might a watching world look in at Modern Road Church and see the power of the gospel um, and see even something of you and what you're like. In your name we pray. Amen.